What the heck is an investment club? Our guest does a deep dive into what it is and how you could potentially use them to your advantage. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights, just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to the show. In this episode, we talk about investment clubs. And you're probably sitting there like, what the heck is an investment club? Well, I'll get to that in a second. But here to go back and forth with me on the topic is Dr. John Jerica, host of the Physicians Non-Clinical Careers podcast. He and I actually did a show recently together where we talked about the financial considerations physicians should make when in a career transition. And if you haven't heard it yet, you should go check it out. While it's honestly completely unrelated to the topic at hand, I actually think you'll enjoy it. So if you haven't heard of what an investment club is, honestly, you're not the only one. It's a group of people who learn how to invest in stocks and ultimately they turn around and invest together. They create a legal entity to put their money together and make investment decisions based on their collective knowledge. 25 years ago, our guest John and seven of his friends created an investment club. They put a partnership agreement in place, identified their investment criteria, opened up their TD Ameritrade accounts, and actually have been investing together ever since, which is kind of a cool thing. So without further ado, let's jump right in and talk with John. John, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you here. I've been wanting to get you on for months and months. So thank you for being here. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. It's a good thing. I'm glad to see you, Ryan, or hear you. Absolutely. So let's jump right in. Most people are probably trying to figure out what the heck is an investment club. We've never talked about on the show. And full disclosure, I'm not a huge fan of these. So I think it's going to be really fun to kind of go back and forth with it. But let's just start from the basics. Like, What is an investment club? Well, an investment club is a group or a club of people like myself or yourself who want to get together and learn about stock investing, learn how to evaluate a stock, pull their money into an actual legal structure and and open up an account and so forth so that they can actually invest together. And over time, it serves as a way to, to learn, to actually make some money and to have some fun. Are you a part of an investment club? Yes, I am not a financial expert by any means or even a stock expert, but in 1993, 25 plus years ago, seven of us got together. We were friends or acquaintances. I actually don't remember the exact circumstances. And we got together and we talked about creating an investment club. At that time, it was a very popular topic. It was on the news a lot. There were Georgetown ladies had been interviewed. Their book hadn't come out yet, but everyone was talking about investment clubs. The stock market, I guess, was doing pretty well. And so some of us got together, it was a couple of physicians and three or four non-physicians, and we said, why don't we do this? We met for a while, put together a partnership agreement, opened an account at I don't know, TD Ameritrade or somewhere like that, and started investing by contributing money once a month since then. Okay. So if we go back, yeah, I mean, the market had corrected in, early, in the early 90s, if I recall. And then as we basically just started this massive bull market, and then which ultimately ended up blew up with the tech bubble in, in 2000, 1990, 2000-ish. 
So you essentially started in, let's say, the early mid nineties. Um, it was the buzz. It was the talk of the town. And seven of you decided to get together and invest together in this circumstance. How did you guys decide like what your investment philosophy was? How did seven of you just agree on this? So there was an organization that we kind of researched and became part of. It was called the NAIC, the National Association for Investment Clubs, which is now called Better Investing. And they're pretty well known. I mean, they were the premier organization that if you were going to start an investment club, you'd use their services. They had a lot of free education. They had manuals, step-by-step, walk through it. Here's how you create a partnership agreement. And we did, and to this day, follow the original sort of guidelines that they had. So there's no speculation. The only stocks we invest in are stocks with a long history. Uh, The goal is to, you know, shoot for a 15% growth in revenues and earnings over at least the last five to 10 years and so on and so forth. We can go into that. But so, yeah, we had, it was kind of a hand-holding thing. We went through it. Some of us took turns and presented different parts to one another. And so we really followed that from day one. So it's interesting. You you mentioned investment criteria, and I do want to jump into that in just a little bit. But I think everyone listening needs to kind of put this also into perspective that the buzz right now is a lot on passive investing, index investing, Nobel Prize winning research that shows that this works over time versus active management, which you guys basically were starting. And that was the norm back then. Just as like I look at it from an advisor perspective, the norm was assets under management. I think now we're switching to this you know, this flat fee concept. But uh, on this, let's quickly just kind of go over the investment criteria that you guys kind of set up. I just have this envision of like seven guys and gals sitting around a table and be like, well, throw a dart. Let's see what works. (laughs) I think the monkey throwing the dart has actually been shown to be a pretty successful tactic, but yeah. Now I got to go find that research. (laughs) The philosophy... And, you know, I don't know that we felt that we could beat the market or that we were going to do better than any professional or that sort of thing. But we wanted to understand stocks. You know, some of us, you know, there was a lot of buzz and I would sit in the doctor's lounge and the docs would come in and I just bought a thousand shares of blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, based on what? And I mean, I just buried myself in financial information and stock and so forth. Uh, Started getting value line and started reading those and so forth. But we really did it more so we could understand. Now, some of us have somewhat of a individual stock portfolio, but I'll tell you that for me, 99.9% of what I own in stocks is in mutual funds, S&P 500, you name it. And so the only money that I have in stocks now is still in the investment club in terms of individual stocks. So it wasn't that we philosophically thought we, we could beat the market, but I think in even understanding and talking with, let's say, a financial advisor who's telling us about stock purchases or mutual funds, I mean, you know, you can read about mutual funds, but I mean, it sort of doesn't mean anything unless you sort of know what is in a mutual fund and what determines the value of what's in a mutual fund. So that's kind of how we looked at it. I personally was just reading every book I could get. I mean, back then, as far as stocks, you know, it was Peter Lynch's books and John Bogle's books and things like that that just kind of just gives you an overview of just understanding what a stock is. But you know, the way we came to look at it was a stock is simply a company, you know, and we all know that for the average investor, if you want to build long-term wealth, other than starting your own company, which is probably the best way if it's successful, is just invest in a bunch of other companies. The easiest way to do that and the safest way is probably a mutual fund, which is just a collection of stocks of individual companies. And so, well, then what goes into buying those companies? And if you're going to do an investment club, 
or I guess theoretically, if you were a conservative sort of mutual fund, uh, you know, owner or manager, then how do you evaluate the companies? And so we were looking at really basic stuff, just what are the revenues? Are they growing? What are the earnings? Are they growing? And then for the investment club, the other piece of this is always buying the company or the stock when the PE is less than its average that it's been for the last five years. So PE is a price earnings ratio. And, you know, people say that if the price is above its average price earnings ratio, it's probably a little expensive. And if you can buy it when the price earnings is lower than the average, it's probably a little bit on sale. And so that's kind of what we did. It's an ultra conservative way to purchase stocks. And we had some other rules that we followed. But, you know, I think if you can go through that and you're just doing it with relatively small amounts of money, small shares, you can get a better idea of like, well, why this mutual fund might be better than another. So that's kind of how we look at it. I think the takeaway I want to I want to bring out with this, and I think it's uh, amazing the way you've kind of laid this out here is the takeaway is you're not betting the house on this. This isn't your only investment strategy. This is one of several things you're doing. I look at it as almost like a lottery fund, which I have myself. I completely believe in index investing, passive investing, but some part of me wants to, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, gamble with some money and buy companies that I think are doing well or that I like their product. And you know, I miss all the time, but it's fun. This isn't something, I mean, I'm looking at like 1% of my net worth is in this type of thing. I don't hold, I actually have a strict rule myself is that if I buy a company, um, because I nerd out and I like this stuff, if I buy something, I don't put more than $2,000 into it. So it's not like this is, you know, a large sum of money. Now, while we are in residency, that would have been a horrible idea and we wouldn't have done that. But now I'm, you know, we're, we're out, my wife's working and we can, you know, technically afford it. And hopefully, you know, I'm not wrong, but more than often I'm going to be wrong. The, the whole bull market you know, in the last 10 years has obviously really helped make me look smart in some of these. But if people, as they listen, if physicians and, and their spouses are listening to this and they're like, well, you know, I've got some friends and we all can pool our money together. And this sounds like fun. What do you think about that? Like to follow kind of in your footsteps there? Is there any roadblocks? Is there any things that kind of blew up in your face? Are all seven members still around after 25 years and all still like each other and agree? Like I have so many questions around that. Yeah. Let me just quickly add that by virtue of having a club, you're kind of reducing some of the risk that you talked about because you know, you're you're working now, obviously you're well educated and you can analyze these things. But if you're in a room with seven or eight or 10 people, we're all presenting stocks every month. We're all tracking the stocks that we purchase. Each one has, is assigned a stock. So when the fundamentals change, then there can be, hey, I think it's time to drop Microsoft and maybe look for something else. You get feedback. You know, we have in our club, we have an attorney, we have an accountant, you know, somebody who owns radio companies, small businessmen, CEO of a hospital, you know, you name it. And so you're getting all these different inputs, plus they bring their expertise of whatever you know, one of the guys that's in our club owns seven McDonald's franchises. So he's pretty good on bringing us insight on that. Now, he's a little biased, and I've had to argue with him about selling McDonald's. But anyway, and it is fun. I mean, it's fun to get together. If you read the information through betterinvesting.org, I mean, and there's a magazine out, and they present a club every month. I mean, you'll just see, I mean, some of these clubs have dinner once a year as kind of with some of their extra earnings, or they'll take a trip together. 
you know, they'll meet in each other's homes. You mm-hmm. know, we happen to meet in, in the hospital at one of the meeting rooms. You know, you've heard that we're kind of the sum of the five people we hang out with. Well, I consider my investment club to be some of the best people I hang out with once a month. So, I mean, it's fun and it, it's a social thing as well. But yeah. the other thing is, you know, we're investing each of us $100 a month. I mean, that's not even, you know. I mean, yeah, the guy that owns money, seven, you know? yeah, he owns seven McDonald's franchises. He's probably netting a million a month, like a hundred bucks. He's probably there for the camaraderie and to, you know, to hang out with yep. you guys. And it's funny you mentioned the, you know, we are kind of uh, what the five people are closest to us. And we did a show with Nick True on the science behind positive financial habits. So I really would love for everyone to go back and listen to that show because it is true. The behaviors of people really influence what we're doing and how we're doing it. And you probably gained a lot of knowledge from some really talented businessmen and women that are in that group with you. But continue. Hundred dollars. So you guys only invest a hundred dollars a month. I think that's really good perspective. As like this isn't. Oh, this is the nineteen thousand I'm putting into my four hundred one k for two thousand nineteen. Yeah, and the expenses we have is we have to pay a membership to Better Investing, and then we have software to do the accounting. Now that is critical. We used to do it manually, then we bought, you know, discs that had it, but now all accounting is online through my iClub, which is kind of an affiliate of Better Investing, and it does everything for you. I mean, we've had members pass away, we've had seven members withdraw, we've had new members come in. Mm. Now, and to give you an example, too, of how it can get a little complicated, you know, there's stock splits and all that, but it's all handled pretty well through the software. You mentioned discs. I got to ask, are you talking about floppy discs? Please yeah, like me. floppy. Oh, and then, I love yeah, it. you know, the hard disk. This is but, how I know you're old school and been in it for a while. Oh, We're yeah. talking floppy disks. We had two members who lived like two or three hours away who they only actually inter- interfaced with us online. And actually one was the treasurer and he would do his presentations through Zoom. So, I mean, there are clubs out there that are completely virtual. You know, that's kind of interesting. But, you know, to talk a little bit about the risk, you know, and you're right, we've been in a pretty much of a bull market, but I look back and I've put in a hundred a month and what I did whenever there was a pullback in the market, I increased the amount I put in, you know, 200, 300. Mm. So over that time, I think I put in somewhere around 40 grand and my component now is worth about 116, but I took 25 out about three years ago. So, I mean, that's mm. a, it was a decent return and the club has been close to, to seven figures, but you know, we had, like I said, seven people leave and they took their money with them. So I mean, it's not a bad investment. I'm not saying, again, it's, you know, it's not like, you know, winning a million bucks in a lottery, but it's fun and we learn along the way. And I've learned some lessons, you know, the lessons are to stick with the fundamentals that you learn from better investing. You know, don't, you know, people come in with stock tips or they come in with something that has zero earnings, but it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's like, you know, we can't do that in the club. We can't short stocks. We can't buy speculative investments. So stick with the fundamentals, but I'm going to stick with it till I can't anymore. Yeah. I think it's interesting though, because again, you didn't bet the farm on this. Honestly, I'm thinking of this as we're talking through it as kind of like a paid mastermind group. And some physicians or spouses might not know what those are, but it's essentially a group of people that get together of somewhat varying backgrounds. Sometimes they all have the same background. Um, I'll give you an example. I, when I launched my firm a little over three years ago, there was a group of people that we met every week to go over growing our own firms and understanding compliance and regulation because that's a huge deal for us. And it's really hard to to grasp everything you can and can't do right in the beginning. And to this day, three and a half years later, there's four of us and we meet literally every Tuesday at 9 a.m. And it's just a great group of guys 
that I absolutely love, made lifelong friends with, and one I'm doing another podcast with, Money Care Specialist with Tim Baker. It's been amazing. All you guys are doing is adding an investment component to it and strapping some rules around it. And obviously there's some other framework around it to do this. So how did you guys structure your investment club? It's a partnership. Now I would say, and we have a signed document, you know, a signed partnership agreement. And actually in the agreement are some of the stipulations that we can only buy stocks, you know, that are traded on a, a sizable platform and, you know, we can't do speculative investments, but yeah, we all signed it. As people leave, we had to update it. As people join, we had to update it. It's a little different now. I think some of them are forming LLCs. We pass through all the tax issues to the individual member. Most new clubs actually get a tax ID number and they do their taxes within the LLC, which is probably the way to go now. But we actually have a letter from the IRS that said that the way we were doing it was fine. So we never changed it. Yeah. And looking at like the legalities of some of these things, some of the planners, because we do have financial planners that listen to the show, might be going, hey, but you know what? You like you should be registered at the SEC or something like that. But if if everyone's active and has a, an active role in this, and it's not just someone like, hey, I'm going to toss two hundred dollars a month in, and and you guys figure this out for me. If they're passive, then you would have to be registered. But if they're not, and everyone's active, you don't. I keep hearing this, and you know, I said at the beginning, and you've been such a, a great sport with this, but I'm not really a huge fan of these. I I think people don't need this. But at the same time, if you're never going to save and you're never going to invest, like anything is better than nothing. So I appreciate you kind of giving us the pros of this, but come join my side of the table real quick. Let's talk on the cons of having this type of structure, this type of group. Is there illiquidity? What issues could you arise or maybe that your other members had when they decided to leave or someone passed? Let's talk on some of the, the cons of this. Well, first, I'll agree with the point that, you know, I would probably do this after the other stuff was all in place and going. I wouldn't necessarily do this as my first choice. So there's that. As and, far and as real quick, you're referring to like maxing your 401k, putting money in your IRA, that kind of stuff. Is that what you're referring to? Right. Right. Okay. You know, so this has really no long term impact except hopefully a little bit of positive, you know, with a real little downside. Well, 116,000. That's not a little bit of change. Right. And, and you guys have clearly made some good choices and probably some bad choices, but $116,000 sitting in a taxable account like that's allocated to you is not something to sneeze at. So, yeah. So, that, I mean, I'm, I'm appreciative of that. I'm going to maybe take a vacation and grab some of that money. But as far as the cons, it can get a little complicated. Okay. One is people that just don't participate. So, you know, the rules say we vote on everything, we all take turns presenting. And so there's a little bit of unrest sometimes in the clubs like, you know, we haven't heard from so-and-so in like a year, you know, he's not taking his money out, but he's not contributing. He's not doing anything. So that could be a bit of a sticking point. It can get a little bit of complicated with kind of stock splits where you've got part of it's being paid as cash, part is stock. So hopefully the software handles all that, but we've had to have, you know, some accounting time devoted to that. So it gets a little complex. Nothing else, you know, you can be bonded. We're not bonded, but you can purchase a surety bond for that if you like, you know, if you really want to play it safe so you can protect yourself from somebody skedaddling with the money. But the brokerage firms are pretty careful about that. So it's not easy to do that. So other issues, no time, you know, as we've gotten further along, done different things, we're going different directions, people move away, you know, it's just hard to find a time that's convenient for everybody. 
and, you know, have the commitment. And actually the biggest thing that challenges us that I brought up lately is we need some younger members because like we're all going over a cliff in about five or 10 years here as we all retire and move away. So it's like, we would really like to get some younger members, get them interested and then sort of hand the responsibilities off to them. Yeah. It's interesting. And I think you might, and I don't mean to be glass half full on this because usually I'm a glass completely overflowing full person, but you know, as the internet has made it widely available with tons of information the younger generations are reading and the the buzz and everything right now is passive investing. So there are some, and I've talked to plenty of physicians over the last several years, beating the market and market performance and, you know, very driven and kind of anti the Nobel prize winning research that shows the exact opposite. You know, there are people out there, but I think it might be a little tougher to grow considering that it's not all about investment clubs. Now it's kind of the opposite type of strategy. Well, yeah, you don't, number one, you don't hear much about investment clubs. It's definitely not something that's promoted. And so really for a club like ours, we have to go out and beat the bushes and, and kind of convince somebody to join us. But, you know, I'd look at it more as a hobby with the potential upside more than anything else. Oh, I thought you were about to say a cult and I was like, whoa, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, not that far. No. So John, I know, and we've talked plenty of times offline here, and I know that you've been blogging and podcasting you got an awesome podcast all about basically non-clinical careers. And you've kind of paved that way yourself. It's rare that we get someone that's an expert in this on the show. So I'd like to quickly, if you could, just tell us like one or two minutes on like how your career went. And then I'd like to really talk to you about that change from clinical to non-clinical. Okay, sure. I'd be happy to. I was a practicing family physician. I was in a small group and you know, after being in practice 15 or 20 years, I got a little burnt out maybe, but I had interest in other things and I was always doing a side gig. So ultimately, I kind of made the commitment to move into a non-clinical career in hospital management because I was still seeing patients at the hospital. A lot of family docs don't do that anymore, but I was. And so I had done some UM and some other things and I went to the CEO and I said, hey, I don't think you've ever had an executive physician as part of this hospital and I'll start as the VPMA, and we, that's what we did. Along the way, I got a master's in public health, which helped a little bit with quality improvement and population health and so forth. And then eventually I stopped practicing, but I did both for, I think, almost 10 years. So kind of took a safe way to make the transition and became the uh, senior VP and chief medical officer for the last four or five years I was working there. And actually for me, it was great because my lifestyle got better, made more money, and I had more fun. So it was a good transition. And I really strongly encourage physicians not to get out of medicine, but to take a leadership position in medicine, have the chance, whether it's still within clinical or outside of clinical, but tons of jobs out there if you do decide, you know, that you want to leave clinical medicine. Yeah, it's interesting. So there's kind of like these like four pillars of a decision. And as we kind of were discussing, there's like the financial piece, the physical piece, the emotional piece. And really, I guess it all kind of ties into being personal right on this. But you said you had more fun. So that's the emotional side of this. You know, can you kind of maybe touch on each one? Let's start with financial, actually. Yeah. So for me, most primary care docs, excluding ob if you talk peds, family medicine, internal medicine, if you get into a position like I had, which is within hospital leadership, you're probably going to see an uptick in your salary, number one. You're going to get bonuses, which often help. You're going to have, you know, nice... Uh, perks. You're going to sometimes get deferred compensation, which adds, adds even more. I happened to get a free membership to the country club, which was nice, although I didn't golf. 
And so for me, now if you're, you know, a neurosurgeon, you're probably not going to match your salary. However, if you're a burned out neurosurgeon whose back is hurting and you basically can't do surgery anymore, then hey, go for it. Yeah, totally different ballgame. So what about the the emotional side of this? Like, it, you know, I've talked to so many physicians and just all of our friends are physicians. And it's even with my wife, it is a part of her. It is who she is to get rid of being a doctor. I feel like I would be ripping out part of her. And it's not just her. It's a lot of physicians feel like it's so part of them because you've spent so long studying, training, crafting, being just perfect at everything, essentially. How did you kind of overcome that? Well, that can be a difficulty. Although if you're really burnt out, you know, you kind of ignore that whole thing. But the reality is many of the jobs that physicians go into, being a physician is integral to the job. In fact, there are hundreds of types of jobs where the prerequisite for getting the job is to be a residency trained board certified physician with at least five years of practice under their belt. So it's not like you're actually stepping away. You're building on this health and medical knowledge that you have, and you're filling a gap that actually essential, whether it's to a pharmaceutical company or a hospital health system, you know, you name it. Well, I absolutely love it. And I, I appreciate you kind of just talking a little bit on this. And I think we're definitely going to need to have you back on to kind of go more in depth on this. Because I, I see this stuff, I get asked this stuff as physicians want to either transition part-time away or start a side gig. I mean, the side gig is a huge buzzword right now. There's whole groups of physicians that are, uh, you know, a part of these things trying to figure this out. Let's just, as we round out, for those that haven't heard your awesome podcast, tell them a little bit about what you're doing there um, and make sure you tell them where to find you. They can listen to you as they're listening here, whatever podcast player, Google podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, whatever you can hear John there, but tell us a little bit about what you're up to. Yeah, so I've been podcasting for a little over a year, and most of my podcasts are interviews with physicians who have made the change. They are either doing a part-time, non-clinical career, or they've transitioned totally into a non-clinical career full-time. Most of them will stay in a career that, as I said, builds on their medical knowledge. Now, I have, you know, my most recent guest is going into acting, so she's still working as a physician in acting, but ultimately she just wants to go into acting full-time. But that's the focus of the podcast. Fair amount in there about physician leadership and working for hospitals and health systems, but I've interviewed about 50 or so guests, and I've had anything from expert witnesses who do that part-time to full-time, you know, insurance medicine physicians. So it's pretty interesting. There's a lot of interest in it, you know, it's just that because of burnout, but remember that not everyone that switches careers is doing it for that reason. A lot of them do want to get into something that's just more challenging they want to continue to learn or they find certain aspects of health are more interesting. And are you still taking guests? Are you still growing the the need there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely would like to get feedback and, you know, guests that people would be interested in hearing. The URL or where you can find this is Physician Non-Clinical Careers in iTunes or go to, actually, it's on my blog. So the URL is VitalPE for Vital Physician Executive, VitalPE. Dot net and you can find the blog and the podcast and or go to iTunes and wherever. Perfect. Well, we've got thousands of physicians and spouses of physicians that listen to the show. So if you're out there and you think, hey, I'd like to be on a podcast and, you know, aside from calling in a question here, which you can do, you know, at any time going to financialresidency.com and clicking that ask a question. We've had several come in actually over the past few weeks. Uh, but if you're one of the thousands out there listening to us and you'd like to be on a show, 
anything maybe you can contribute. John's, uh, I guess, looking for guests. And uh, everyone, I encourage you to check out his podcast. It's awesome. John, thank you so much for being here. It's always fun to hang out and chat with you. Thanks a lot. It's been my pleasure, Ryan. All right, it's Ryan back here to give you the quick recap of the show. Here are the three main takeaways from our conversation that I want you to walk away with. Takeaway number one, understanding what an investment club really is. John describes what it is and its actual purpose. He says that when you're in an investment club, some of the risks are mitigated. Well, an investment club is a group or a club of people like myself or yourself who want to get together and learn about stock investing, learn how to evaluate a stock, pull their money into an actual legal structure and open up an account and so forth so that they can actually invest together. And over time, it serves as a way to learn, to actually make some money and to have some fun. Takeaway number two, how they set up a criteria for understanding what they're buying and doing the research to really understand what their investment criteria is. Notice that they're doing it with small amounts of money, maybe as little as $100 each, so they can learn by putting their money to work versus always sitting on the sidelines. They were the premier organization that if you were going to start an investment club, you'd use their services. They had a lot of free education. They had manuals, step-by-step, walk through it. Here's how you create a partnership agreement. And we did, to this day, follow the original guidelines that they had. Takeaway number three, John looks at investment clubs as having a potential upside, but due to the internet and the ever-expanding quality of information out there, he says that they're having difficulty finding members to join them as most people are learning online for themselves. By virtue of having a club, you're kind of reducing some of the risk that you talked about because obviously you're well-educated and you can analyze these things. But if you're in a room with seven or eight or 10 people, we're all presenting stocks every month. We're all tracking the stocks that we purchase. Each one is assigned a stock. So when the fundamentals change, then there can be, hey, I think it's time to drop Microsoft and maybe look for something else. You get feedback. You know, we have in our club, we have an attorney, we have an accountant, you know, somebody who owns radio companies, small businessmen, CEO of a hospital, you know, you name it. And so you're getting all these different inputs, plus they bring their expertise. While I'm personally not a fan of investment clubs, I could understand and see how they could be fun and a low risk way for a group of people to learn about investing and to make some money and investments together. Uh, It's a low risk because they're basically doing it with a small amount of money. Even though you have a lot of people, that does not mean that the risk is any different than if you were just going to buy it on your own. We have some pretty amazing stuff going on at financialresidency.com. We're putting out two blogs a week on content that you have all asked for. Basically, Each time you ask a question, I get inspired to write on it and answer your question. Because if one of you has the question, many more of you probably do and either forgot to write in or maybe you're just too embarrassed to ask. And please don't ever be too embarrassed to ask questions. You can even do it anonymously by going to financialresidency.com slash question. It's never dumb. There's no dumb questions. It's just dumb not to ask them. 
If the podcasting community has brought you value, please consider helping by getting our message of taking control over your finances and setting ourselves up with a strong financial foundation out to other physicians and their families. The more the merrier in our community. Let's grow. Don't forget also to check out our other podcast called Physician Finance Minute. That podcast provides a daily tip that will help you crush your debt, understand your cash flow, learn how to invest, and just gain confidence when it comes to your finances. So go check it out wherever you're listening to me right now. It's free. It's a minute a day, and it's called Physician Finance Minute. I'm thrilled that you decided to take time out of your day to listen to me yap about finances. It is my passion, and I know I can be a little nerdy about it. But this information is for you, and I'm just happy to be the messenger. While I'm honored to have you here with me, I can't give you any specific advice on your financial situation through the show. You need to consult your attorney, your CPA, or shoot, reach out to me, a fee-only financial planner, before you go and make any big money decisions. That's just the smart thing to do. Next week, our special guest is returning for a second time on the show. We have back Dr. Corey Fawcett. It's another killer episode. I can't wait for you all to hear it. Have a great week. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.